We have lived in eventful times, but in the course of my life I have no recollection of a moment so full of portent as the present. We have accounts here from the United States by way of England. They are more immediately warlike than I expected or could have wished. It has indeed long been my conviction that the British orders in council, unless abandoned, would inevitably produce a war between us and England. There are circumstances upon which I wish to found a hope that with a little more patience and forbearance we shall see the downfall of that infamous compound of robbery, perjury, and fraud by the weight of its mischief recoiling upon its authors, without being obliged, on our part, to resort to force for its destruction. John Quincy Adams, 1812 200 years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge and a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, an author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at seconddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, or one word, two Ds in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 15, The War of 1812, Part 1 If you're a history buff, like I am, and a movie buff, like I also am, chances are pretty good that you've seen the famous film Patton. The 1970 movie, directed by Franklin J. Schaffner, for which George C. Scott won, and refused, an Academy Award for Best Actor. You know it. At the beginning of this film, Scott, as Patton, gives a rousing harangue to his troops on the meaning of victory. It was a real speech. The real Patton really gave it in 1944 to the Third Army. In the speech he said, and I'm sure you remember it in the movie, Americans love a winner and will not tolerate a loser. Americans play to win all the time. That's why Americans have never lost and will never lose a war. When the movie was made in 1970, and especially now in the 21st century, there are several huge asterisks hanging over this statement, Vietnam and Iraq chief among them. But even in Patton's own time, you could ask, if you were brave enough to dispute George S. Patton, um, General, what about the War of 1812? But that leads to another question, a very natural and very straightforward question. What on earth was the War of 1812? If you don't know, or even if you've heard of it but don't know much about it, you're not alone. If they know anything at all about the War of 1812, most Americans might be able to tell you it's how we got the Star-Spangled Banner, the song written by Francis Scott Key in 1814, and the real flag displayed in the entry gallery of the Smithsonian. Americans of a certain age, that is, who remember pop culture of the 1950s, might also know that the War of 1812 involved the Battle of New Orleans, 
chiefly because a song of that title by Johnny Driftwood that was a Billboard chart hit in 1959. But that's really about it. A song, a flag, and the Battle of New Orleans. That's what most people know. Even the name of the war is strange. The War of 1812. Strange name for a war. No other war in American history has a name like that. It's not like we call World War II the War of 1941, or the Iraq War the War of 2003. But the United States did fight a war in that year, and for nearly three years afterwards, against its first and most acrimonious enemy, Great Britain, and also against a multinational coalition of Native American tribes, a piece of this conflict that's even more obscure than most aspects of it. At least 18,000 real people died in it, probably many more. What was this conflict about? Well, it's complicated. Who won this war? That's even more complicated, Patton's grandstanding aside. Delving into the War of 1812 in any serious way is actually a lot of work, which might be why a lot of people decide not to bother. The war has its share of drama. In our story, there are plenty of sailing ships and booming cannons and waves of stampeding Indian warriors. The War of 1812 would make a great movie, or better yet, maybe a Netflix series. But trying to explain why all this happened is, well, complicated. But that's no excuse not to try. The War of 1812, at least for Americans, lies at the very heart of our history in the second decade, in much the way the Napoleonic Wars lies at the heart of European history. In fact, these conflicts were very closely intertwined. It's a big subject, and that's why it's going to take more than one episode to do. This is going to be the big story, the broad issues, the big picture. I'm doing it this way because there's plenty of smaller stories, details about the War of 1812, that I want to do as standalone episodes later on. The burning of Washington, D.C., for example, or the famous naval duel between the USS Constitution and the Guerriere. I'm going to skim over those sorts of details tonight, and in the next part of this series, however long it takes, with the promise that I'm going to tell those smaller stories in detail later on. So join me now for a rather unusual trip deep into a relatively obscure part of American, British, Native American, and world history. An attempt to throw a rope around the War of 1812. In June 1807, almost five years to the day before the War of 1812 officially began, an American sailing frigate, the USS Chesapeake, was going about her merry way off the coast of Norfolk, Virginia, when her lookout spotted a sail on the horizon. A British ship, the HMS Leopard, quickly approached and hailed them. A British officer, Lieutenant John Meade, came aboard the Chesapeake and served her captain with a search warrant. The Brits had reason to believe that four deserters from the Royal Navy were serving aboard the Chesapeake, and they demanded the captain turn them over to Meade. The captain refused. Eventually, there was a fracas. Cue the roaring cannons I mentioned earlier. The Leopard started pumping cannonballs, three whole broadsides worth, right into the Chesapeake's hull. The American frigate struck her colors, a humiliating defeat. Three Americans were dead, 18 wounded, but the Brits took their four deserters. The issue wasn't just that the British Navy had attacked and boarded an American ship on the high seas. Of those four deserters, three of them were American citizens. 
The fourth, who was British, was hanged. Two of the three Americans were African Americans. The British eventually released the three. The nation was outraged. President Thomas Jefferson was certainly cognizant of the sudden war fever that was heating up the front pages of newspapers all over America. But as a practical matter, there wasn't a lot he could do. The U.S. had only a handful of naval ships and no standing army even worth being called that. The Chesapeake matter was a flashpoint, and a pretty spectacular one, what with booming cannons and everything. But it was just one of many issues that were out there between America and Britain, and between the United States and the various Native American tribes on its soil. The story of the War of 1812 begins not in 1807 with the Chesapeake Affair, but with the American Revolution. There's a wonderful historian, Alan Taylor. I know Dr. Taylor. I was on a panel chaired by him at a conference last summer. Anyway, Alan Taylor put it best in his book about the war that America and Britain were incompletely separated by the American Revolution. The War of 1812 completed that separation. In 1783, the new United States, represented by Benjamin Franklin and John Adams, negotiated a peace treaty, the Treaty of Paris, that ended the Revolutionary War and provided for Britain's recognition of the existence of the United States, as opposed to just a rabble of rebellious colonies. This treaty was rather an oversimplification of a lot of complicated issues, because the end of the Revolutionary War was quite messy. Let's take, for example, Canada. In 1775, at the beginning of the Revolutionary War, American, that is to say Patriot, forces tried to gain control of the territories of Quebec and Ontario, which is where the French and Indian War between France and Britain had been decided. The Americans failed, and there really wasn't much opportunity to try again. By the end of the Revolution, tens of thousands of Loyalists, people in the colonies who disagreed with the Revolution and wanted to stay British, thousands of them settled in Canada. It was hard enough in 1783 to draw the border between British-held Canada and the new United States, but the issue was even more complicated because that border, the frontier, ran right through a number of very powerful Native American nations, most of whom had sided with the British during the Revolution. How to prevent this frontier from turning into a new hotbed of conflict between the U.S. and Britain and also between the U.S. and Native Americans was a constant headache in the years following the Revolution. Eventually, this area was studded with military forts. The city of Detroit originally started as a fort. Toronto, Canada's largest city, used to be known as Fort York, a British military fort. The line between what was American and what was British, wherever it actually ran, was, in this period, sort of like the line between Israel and some of its Arab neighbors today, a danger zone where conflict always seems ready to break out at any time. The border, though, was one of the easier problems. The citizenship issue, which heavily involves action on the high seas, was really contentious, and I think lies at the heart of the War of 1812, at least as between Britain and the U.S. I began with the Chesapeake matter because it perfectly illustrates how this citizenship issue played out. Who counted as an American, meaning a citizen of the United States? Who counted as still being British? It was a lot harder to figure out than you might think. Every person born in the former colonies up until July 4, 1776, was born a British subject. Now, 1783, Britain was agreeing that they were citizens of another country, but who exactly? Beyond people like John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, 
clearly born in the British colonies of Massachusetts and Virginia respectively, and who were now clearly citizens of the U.S., those were the easy cases. A harder case involves naturalization. In 1798, a rebellion broke out in Ireland against British rule, led by Irish who followed the ideals of the American and French revolutions. The British put down the rebellion, but many Irish fled Ireland, winding up the United States. This was the first great exodus of Irish to America, before the wave of immigration in the 1840s, triggered principally by the potato famine. Anyway, if you were born in Ireland under British rule, you could come to America and become naturalized. American law recognized this, but British law did not. If you were born a British subject, according to them, there was no way you could ever become anything other than British. In the 1780s and 1790s, the new United States was trying hard to expand its commercial networks of shipping and commerce overseas. We talked about this a little in Episode 4 on Hawaii. U.S. ships were going all over the Atlantic and Pacific at this time. What did they need? Experienced sailors, lots of them. What country had the best trained and the largest pool of skilled professional sailors in the world? Great Britain. Furthermore, as the U.S. appetite for commercial sailors increased, shippers were able to offer higher wages and much better working conditions on American ships. This meant that a lot of British sailors willingly deserted to serve on American ships, just as those four guys from the Chesapeake did. Furthermore, beginning in 1793, but especially after Napoleon came to power, Britain found itself pretty much constantly at war with France. Britain's navy did a lot more fighting, generally speaking, than its army did. Engaged in pretty much a world war, which stretched on into the second decade, the Brits needed sailors, bad. Since, under their law, the British sailors who defected to go work on American ships were still Brits, the British government felt it was perfectly within their rights to go get them back, if they could. The British Navy would often stop American merchant ships at sea, board them, and search them for any suspiciously British-seeming men, and press them, that was the word, press, press them into British service. Press gangs, they were called, and the practice was called impressment. Between 1803 and 1812, about 6,000 Americans, or kinda sort of Americans, were pressed into service on Royal Navy ships. Some were released, but it took years of diplomatic wrangling. So imagine this. You're some poor British kid from Liverpool or Portsmouth. Maybe you have an abusive family, a drunken father who beats the crap out of you. To get away from him, you run away to join the Royal Navy. It's scarcely better than what you left. The food is disgusting, living conditions are terrible, and the captain whips you every so often for minor infractions. That stuff you see in movies like Master and Commander is pretty accurate. You hear through your travels that the American Merchant Marine is much better. So the next time your ship stops in a port where there are American ships, you desert. Things are much better. You can even become an American citizen. In 1796, the government of the United States started issuing documents called Certificates of Citizenship, basically papers that proved you were an American. On the black market, you could buy a Certificate of American Citizenship for a dollar. So you're an American now. Once you serve a while in the Merchant Marine, you can live in New York or New Bedford or something and start a new life. But then one day your ship encounters a British man-of-war. They board, grab you, and a couple of other guys, you're probably not the only one on your ship with a story like this, and they haul you back to the Royal Navy. But I'm an American, you protest in your thick Cockney accent. 
Do you think they're going to listen to you? 20 lashes for desertion. You see the problem. So that's impressment. Now we get into this orders and council thing. All right, here we go. I know this sounds really boring, but there actually are booming cannons and people swinging on ropes onto enemy ships and that kind of cool stuff, at least in the background. I'm talking about the famous naval battle at Trafalgar in 1805, where Lord Nelson, the British admiral who was only about half there, he had one arm and one eye missing on the same side, I think. Anyway, it was where Lord Nelson turned Napoleon's navy into a puddle of smoldering driftwood. Nelson didn't make it, by the way. He was killed in that battle. But it was a smashing victory for the Royal Navy, and because it effectively ended Napoleon's ability to invade Britain, it meant that his main strategy against the Brits had to shift to economic warfare. Napoleon controlled most of continental Europe and their ports, and he decided to try to freeze Britain's trade and starve her into defeat economically. England fired back. In November 1807, a few months after the Chesapeake thing, the British government issued the Orders in Council. They declared a blockade of French ports, and it said that any ships of neutral countries bound for France must first stop in England, pay a duty, and get checked to make sure they weren't carrying weapons to Napoleon. Napoleon responded with his own decrees and blockades. It's really complicated, but by the beginning of the second decade, American merchant ships couldn't really trade anywhere in Europe without violating either the British Orders in Council or Napoleon's decrees. In the five years leading up to the War of 1812, about 900 American ships were seized either by the British or the French. Essentially, the war between Britain and France was taking a huge toll on the American economy. What could the United States do? Well, remember what I said earlier, that the U.S. had only a very small army, mostly patrolling those forts up by the Great Lakes, and the Navy was pretty pathetic. When Thomas Jefferson came to power as president in 1801, he and his party, the Democratic Republicans, actually began dismantling the Navy to the extent they could. Jefferson believed it was a foolish and counterproductive move to build the Navy by his hated predecessor, his rotundity, John Adams. Of course, that same Navy happened to come in handy when Jefferson needed to blast the Barbary pirates. Anyway, militarily by 1807, there's not much the U.S. can do to strike back either at Britain or France, except economically. Britain was the U.S.'s main trading partner, and France was second. Jefferson and the Democratic Congress got the idea of economic sanctions against Britain and France. Great idea, right? Hit him in the pocketbook, right? In 1807, Congress passed a Non-Importation Act, an embargo, which forbade American ships from leaving port. Gee, guys, that's a hot idea, isn't it? Voluntarily cut off commerce with your two top trading partners. The result? Depression. Huge economic depression. In 1807, the United States exported $108 million worth of goods. In 1808, a year later, it was $22 million. The embargo pinched both North and South. Northern cities focused on sea commerce and manufacturing were especially badly hit. But the big southern planters who exported tobacco and cotton grown by slaves were badly hit too. Thomas Jefferson himself was one of them. We talked about that in episode 6. After nearly bleeding to death economically for 15 months, Congress repealed the embargo in March 1809, just as Jefferson was being replaced as president by James Madison. Actually, the repeal proceeded in steps. 
At first, trade with Britain and France was prohibited, but trade with other countries was okay. Madison tried to use the potential reinstatement of trade with Britain and France as a bargaining chip, playing off one against the other, hoping to get them to suspend their blockades and decrees. It only sort of half worked. Napoleon bit at the carrot, but the British wouldn't budge. In February 1811, Madison signed another non-importation act. This one aimed solely at Britain. What you see here is the U.S. government, first under Jefferson, then Madison, desperately grasping at all the possible avenues to deal with England, short of war. That was the next logical step. By 1811, war was definitely on the radar screen. To be honest, there were more than just these foreign policy issues behind the rising tide of war fever that started to overtake the nation's capital in the summer and fall of 1811. There were political reasons, too. By this time, the Democratic-Republican Party had been in power in the White House and both houses of Congress for 10 years. The Federalists, concentrated mostly in New England, were constantly sniping at the government, accusing them of falling down on the job when it came to protecting American interests. The Democratic-Republican Party was itself definitely not falling apart, but becoming strangely disunited and a little bit adrift, as parties in power tend to do after being in charge for so long. The issues in the West, which I'll get to after the break, were a powerful motivator towards some kind of action that would vindicate American rights and American patriotism. Especially if the potential enemy was Britain, the old enemy of the revolutionary days, Fighting a sort of second American Revolution was politically and ideologically attractive to some politicians in Washington. There's also another reason. I noted the strange name of this conflict earlier, the War of 1812. Why didn't it become the War of 1811 or the War of 1813? What do you notice about that year, 1812? It was an election year, and the president, James Madison, was about to run for re-election. If successful, he would be the fourth consecutive term of a president from the Democratic-Republican Party and the fourth consecutive term of a Virginian in the White House. A presidential hat trick three elections in a row was as difficult to pull off in 1812 as it is today, but a fourth, that's really tempting fate, Franklin Roosevelt notwithstanding. Especially with the Federalists fulminating about a Virginia dynasty, Madison was going to need every advantage he could get. A war might just be the thing to do it. In the fall of 1811, President James Madison summoned Congress to meet a couple of weeks earlier than it had originally been scheduled to. This was the 12th Congress, elected in the fall of 1810, but the newspapers and the history books would give it a much more ominous, unofficial name, the War Congress. As politicians were gathering in Washington in early November 1811 to talk about war with England, all hell was breaking loose on the western frontier, particularly in Indiana Territory. The importance of the West and Native American relations on the outbreak of the War of 1812 is, I think, quite overlooked. The story of Indians in this war naturally centers around one of the most fascinating figures in Native American history, a man named Tenskwatawa, known to English speakers more popularly as the Prophet. Tenskwatawa was really an amazing man, and he came from an amazing family. He was one of a set of triplets born in Ohio about 1768. 
His brother, also very famous, was Tecumseh, a leader of the Shawnee tribe. I'm going to do a dedicated episode on Tenskwatawa, the prophet, perhaps this season, perhaps next season, so I'm just going to skim over his remarkable story here. Suffice it to say, Tenskwatawa got his English name, the prophet, because that's exactly what he was. Starting about 1805, he had a series of religious visions and began assembling a loyal following of members of various Native American nations. Among other things, he preached that white people were children of a great evil spirit, and that all Indian peoples must resist them by all means possible, including force. By the beginning of the second decade, Tenskwatawa and his people were a force to be reckoned with. The Prophet had a headquarters, appropriately called Prophet's Town, where two rivers in Indiana meet, one called the Wabash, the other the Tippecanoe. If that word, Tippecanoe, is familiar to you in American history, the story of Tenskwatawa, the Prophet, is basically how it got into our political and historical lexicon. The governor of Indiana Territory was another very interesting fellow, called William Henry Harrison. It's a sin that Hollywood's never made a movie of Harrison's life. It'd be worth it just to cast the actor James Cromwell as Harrison, because he looks exactly like him. I mean, exactly. Harrison, who eventually became president of the United States, albeit very briefly, was also grandfather of another president, that being Benjamin Harrison. Anyway, if Harrison had one guiding principle that anchored his governing philosophy in Indiana Territory, it was this, crush the Indians everywhere and make their land safe for white people. Harrison was a virulent, hardcore, and extremely ardent expansionist. He was also a military leader and had significant experience fighting Indians in the territories. It's kind of odd to imagine a governor as a military commander. Somehow I can't quite picture Jerry Brown or Andrew Cuomo out there in uniform commanding armies of California or New York, respectively. But the second decade was a different time. War was certainly brewing between the Shawnee and U.S. forces in Indiana and Ohio. Tecumseh, who was working together with his brother, had gone south to gain new potential recruits among the Native American tribes there. While he was gone, Harrison led an army to Prophetstown. On November 7, 1811, Tenskwatawa's followers attacked the Americans. The Battle of Tippecanoe was on. The Indians lost. Tippecanoe broke the prophet's power and vaulted Harrison into the realm of national politics. Thirty years later, he would be the first U.S. president to die in office, of pneumonia that he caught at his own inauguration. But even though it was an American victory, it actually worsened relations between the U.S. and Great Britain on the northwest frontier. The Native Americans were generally pro-British. Although Indians in the Old Northwest did have a lot of economic ties to the British, trading particularly across the border with Canada, politically it's not as if the Native Americans had any real love for the Brits. They had, after all, left the Indians in a lurch in the Treaty of Paris in 1783. Most Native American tribes had supported the British in the Revolution, and when it came time to make peace, the Brits promised they'd look out for their Indian allies. Well, let's just say they conveniently forgot this promise when they came to the peace table in Paris in 1783. But the Indians were implacable enemies of the new American government, which openly advocated white expansion into their lands, as much and as fast as possible. While the revolution was going on, many Native American political leaders correctly predicted that if the Patriots won, the new American government would be very difficult to live with. 
As a result, that government tended to see a unity of interests, or at least a unity of acrimony, between Native Americans and the British. In early 1812, just a few months after Tippecanoe and before the declaration of war, a prominent newspaper ran an editorial that charged, quote, We have had but one opinion as the cause of the depredations of the Indians. They are instigated and supported by the British in Canada. Other papers friendly to the administration called the Prophet's Revolt the Anglo-Savage War. You see where this is going. In a curious twist of fate, the War Congress assembled at the Capitol in Washington on November 4, 1811, just three days before the Battle of Tippecanoe. Politically, the Congress was kind of a mess. Gee, what's changed in 200 years? Democratic-Republicans, Madison's party, held supermajorities in both houses. Yet they were curiously adrift and lacked charismatic party leadership. The Federalists, on the other hand, were pretty well organized. Even though their numbers were small, the Federalists could sometimes successfully block Democratic-Republican initiatives by convincing some party members, principally slaveholding Southerners, to defect from the party line once in a while. If you know anything about political science or how legislatures work, you might already see how this is going to play out. In a chamber with a dispirited, disorganized majority party and an energized and unified minority party that needs crossovers to get anything done, you're going to see a center faction, a kind of fulcrum, develop that can leverage both sides and in the process become quite powerful and basically run the table. The guy who led the center faction, and quite possibly the fulcrum of the decision to initiate the War of 1812, was one Henry Clay. A slaveholding Southerner, Born in Virginia but relocated to Kentucky, Clay was an up-and-coming star, a hotshot politician who was only 35 when he was elected to the House of Representatives in 1810. Astonishingly, despite never having sat in the House before, he was elected Speaker of the House on the first day of the new session. That's impressive. You can guess how Clay felt about the issue of war with Britain. In fact, the faction of that Congress that he belonged to was called the War Hawks, mostly Southerners and Westerners, all hot to trot to treat those bad British a lesson and redeem the Republic. Let's just step back for a moment and appreciate how utterly idiotic this policy was. A brand new country, still developing its political institutions, bitterly divided by the issue of slavery, was proposing to declare war on its number one trading partner. Furthermore, the country that was about to do this, which had no standing army to speak of and whose navy was woefully unprepared, was about to fight the world's biggest naval power, a global empire that had already been at war off and on for almost 20 years. That meant that both its navy and its army were commanded and staffed by seasoned military veterans, and its economy and political leadership had been on a war footing for the better part of two decades. Strategically, this is a pretty dumb move, but Henry Clay and the Warhawks saw good politics in it, and they quickly stacked congressional committees with their supporters, So even before the declaration came down, the U.S. was already on a path to war. Between November 1811 and April 1812, Congress passed measures trying to raise an army of 25,000 volunteers and greatly raising defense spending. At least there was some awareness that America was woefully unprepared to take on a global superpower. Ironically, the part of the program to greatly expand the Navy, the one weapon that, if we had it, would be effective against the British, that was voted down. The Warhawks did not, however, think through the question of exactly how to pay for this war that they wanted. 
In January 1812, Albert Gallatin, Madison's Secretary of the Treasury, presented a report to Congress on the nation's finances. The whole budget of the United States government was $9,400,000 for the year 1812. If war was declared, though, Gallatin warned that it would cost at least $10 million more. In other words, the war would cost more than double the entire federal budget. Where would the money come from? Well, what do governments, especially ours, do when they need money? Borrow, that's easy. But that alone wouldn't carry the country through. Gallatin warned that Congress would have to do two things it didn't want to do, raise customs duties and reinstitute internal taxes, which had not been in effect since 1802. Henry Clay and the Warhawks were pretty horrified. Gallatin took a beating in the press for even suggesting that the government would have to raise taxes. What a buzzkill he was. But then what did Congress, dominated by the Warhawks, what did they go right ahead and do? Exactly what they said they didn't want to do. They raised taxes. President Madison spun it as a means of frightening the British into backing down on the orders of council. You know, it shows our steely resolve, or something like that. And all those other times throughout history that the British have quaked in their boots whenever the U.S. Congress passes a revenue measure. If you're getting the impression that the British government didn't really take any of this seriously, that they weren't too afraid of the puny Americans and their matchstick navy, well, you'd be only half right. Believe it or not, while Henry Clay and the Warhawks were steadily marching toward war, the British were actively trying to defuse it. It wasn't because they feared American military power. Far from it. But the British were smart enough to recognize an unnecessary distraction when they saw one. Consider their point of view. Their main enemy, and their biggest problem, was Napoleon. He was still running around like a madman, spilling rivers of blood all over Europe. In the fall of 1811, it looked quite likely that Russia was next on Bonaparte's hit list, which, as you know from episodes 10, 11, and 12, it was. No one could be sure at the time how that war would turn out. If Napoleon managed to win and emerge stronger, England would have to lead the charge to go finish him off. The last thing the British needed was a pesky naval war with an upstart power like the United States, and, given the necessity of defending Canada, there would be land fighting, too. Militarily speaking, that would mean very long and very expensive supply lines across the Atlantic. Why send British ships to go do that when they might be better used blockading France and keeping a lid on Napoleon? The Brits tried to throw some bones to Washington. For one thing, in the fall of 1811, they apologized for that Chesapeake thing and paid reparations. Then they ordered their ships to avoid antagonizing Americans. Certainly don't go around boarding ships and pressing sailors anymore. But to be totally honest, the British were half-assing it. They really were. It's not like there was any concerted diplomatic push to come to a settlement with the American government, and there was no statement that indicated a comprehensive change in policy toward the U.S. The Brits were throwing bones, but there was no broader political coordination behind what they were offering. They were just hoping that Madison and the Congress would eventually find a bone they liked and turn the whole thing off. In the end, and this is the truly ironic thing about the outbreak of the War of 1812, it was a failure of communication that brought the two countries into a conflict that, when you step back from it, didn't really need to happen at all. News and messages between the two governments could move only as fast as a ship could sail across the Atlantic. As it turned out, there was an American ship in Europe, the USS Hornet, that was expected to return to American shores sometime in April or May. 
the Hornet would, of course, bring the latest dispatches and news from England. The Warhawks and Congress decided that the arrival of the Hornet was the fail-safe point. Clay told President Madison that Congress was going to enact another short-term embargo against Britain, but if the Hornet didn't bring news of a British backdown, specifically the repeal of the Orders in Council, Congress would probably declare war on Great Britain. The Hornet, therefore, was the last chance for peace. The short-term embargo turned out to be a disaster. It was a measure that prohibited American merchant ships from leaving port for a period of 60 days. Congress intended it as a means to keep American ships at home, instead of having them out there on the high seas as tempting targets for the Royal Navy, if and when war was declared. But when news that Congress was about to pass the embargo leaked, ship captains scrambled to get their ships out of port before it took effect. This is exactly how Captain Charles Bernard, whose story I told you in Episode 5, ended up sailing to the Falkland Islands just before war was declared. Essentially, the embargo achieved exactly the opposite of what was intended. The Hornet finally sailed, after waiting for as long as it could for news to bring back. It arrived in New York on May 9, 1812. The news wasn't good. The British had not repealed the Orders in Council, and there was no definitive statement that they were planning to. As part of the political agreement he'd made with Henry Clay, Madison addressed what was effectively a war message to Congress on June 1st. They were going to do it, declare war. Here's the irony. In the British cabinet, support for continuing the Orders in Council was already dissipating, and the government was already preparing to throw the bone to Madison and Clay that probably would have averted war. On June 16, 1812, Lord Castlereagh, the British Foreign Secretary, rose to speak in Parliament. He announced that the Orders in Council would be repealed. The repeal became effective on June 23rd. But on the very day Castlereagh spoke, across the ocean in Washington, Congress was hammering out its final version of a declaration of war. There had been fierce debate on whether to declare a limited war, limited to the high seas, or even whether to include France in the declaration. These proposals failed to get out of committee. The Senate passed the final bill on June 17th by a surprisingly narrow vote, 1913. On June 18th, 1812, the bill went to President Madison's desk. When he signed it, the first declaration of war in the history of the United States, an unlimited conflict with Great Britain began. At the same time, on the other side of the world, Napoleon's army was massing along the Neiman River in Eastern Europe for the invasion of Russia. June 1812 was not a good month for world peace. On July 29, 1812, the first news of the American declaration of war reached London. By now, Napoleon's war in Russia was in full swing. To their credit, the ministers in London, who must have realized that their big concession hadn't arrived in time, reacted with uncommon restraint. Really, all they did was sequester American ships that happened to be in British ports, and ordered British ships not to travel on the high seas alone. The real policy, the political move, was to wait to see what Madison did when he found out they'd trashed the Orders in Council. Summer 1812 must have truly been the season of the facepalm, both in Washington and in London. After a huge dough moment in London, when news of the declaration of war reached Whitehall, it was Madison's turn to realize what a horrible mistake he'd made when the news of the Orders in Council repeal reached him in Washington on August 12th. What did he do? Nothing. 
I mean, it must have been an epic facepalm moment, finding out that the reason you ostensibly went to war was already off the table by the time you did it. But the thing was already moving. In 1812, nations couldn't turn off their war machines on a dime. Militia had already been called up. Fresh recruits were already on their way up to the northwest frontier. Orders had already gone out to Navy ships, as best they could, because the U.S. Department of War was a complete shambles in 1812, and the bureaucracy failed from the very beginning to put the country on an effective war footing. Madison knew on August 12, 1812, that the orders had been repealed, but he did not know how the Brits would react to his declaration of war. So he did nothing to try to turn it off. And if he did nothing, and the British had already played their best card for peace, what more could they offer? History shows us that many wars, most in fact, begin at least in part because of tragic miscalculations. Two countries about to engage in military conflict seldom listen to one another very carefully, but that's precisely how you avoid war. In 1812, the United States was not mature enough, diplomatically or on the world stage, to have learned this lesson yet. The British were distracted by Napoleon. Still, in this historian's judgment, there was no excuse for this sorry situation. And over the course of the next two and a half years, tens of thousands of people, Americans, British, Irish, Native Americans, would pay the ultimate price for the miscalculations that led to a conflict that I think most people, even at the time, deep down, would have agreed in their heart of hearts was a pretty stupid idea. In the next episode, I'll continue the story of the War of 1812. If you like this podcast, please share it, tell somebody about it, Mention it on your social media, your Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, whatever you do. Leaving a star rating and a review on iTunes is especially helpful because it will help other history buffs, like you, find this podcast. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash seanmunger. In addition to my Patreon account, you can find me on Twitter at seanmunger, there's an underscore there, and my website, seanmunger.com. My historical sources for this episode include The War of 1812, A Forgotten Conflict by Donald R. Hickey, University of Illinois Press, 1989. Music credits. The main theme of this podcast is titled String Impromptu No. 1 by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night.